BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tired of the late night shows that do nothing but political jokes? Then you are ready for something different. Check out Man of the People with Pat Tomasulo, a different kind of comedy show. Stream it to any device Saturday nights at 11 East, 10 Central at WGNTV.com slash live. You can also find Man of the People on YouTube at Man of the People TV. The team behind Missing Richard Simmons is back with an update and a whole new story. The series is called Headlong Surviving Y2K. Do you remember Y2K? It was when the calendar year flipped from 1999 to the year 2000, and there was an Armageddon that was going to happen. Like, just the world was going to end for a variety of reasons. So this podcast follows it, from an evangelical family preparing for the apocalypse to the coders who fixed the millennium bug, follow their stories through New Year's Eve 1999 and find out what happened at midnight. Plus, host Dan Taberski shares his own Y2K story. It's called Surviving Y2K because Dan barely did. Listen to the entire series ad-free now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash headlong and use promo code obscure for a free month of Stitcher Premium. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your reader, your friend, your ear lover, Michael Ian Black, and things are getting complicated in the world of Jude Fowley. He has unwittingly created for himself a potential love triangle. And anyone who has spent as much time studying Euclid as Jude surely knows the dangers geometry poses. When last we were with Jude, he had finally, finally made the acquaintance of his cousin Sue Bridehead and they had gotten along famously. Two cousins, not kissing cousins, but cousins. Uh, who had hit it off. It was like it was like they'd known each other forever, but then had a problem. Maybe she had to move. She had to leave town uh, because she's a perv. She's not a perv, but but she bought some uh, some pagan statues, as it were, and her landlady did not approve. And so she lost her home and place of employment. So on a rambling, they had decided to go meet Jude's old school teacher, Mr. Phillotson. Turns out Mr. Phillotson could use a kind of apprentice out there in the boonies, uh, Fowley says, hey, Sue, you've ex- you, you talked about being a teacher once. Maybe you should do that. And now she's going to live out there with Phillotson in the schoolhouse out in, in the lonely woods. And, uh, you know, speaking as somebody who lives in the wilds, we don't call them the wilds for nothing. There's all kinds of wild doings out here. Now, I'm not saying Sue Bridehead is in any danger, but what I am saying is that uh, there are animal yearnings that exist out 
in the wilds. You hear the coyotes baying at night sometimes here in the woods, baying for who knows what. Maybe they've just made a kill. And I don't think Mr. Phillotson has any evil intentions in his mind, but there is a chance that he and Sue Bridehead will perhaps fall in love. After all, they're two lonely people in a lonely world. And the only one who knows of his feelings for Sue is Jude. Sue doesn't know. Phillotson doesn't know. Jude has kept them contained within him. Thankfully so, by the way. Uh, And Jude has now fixated on Sue Bridehead a lot of his hopes and dreams. And we know, because we know, that Jude's hopes and dreams are invariably dashed. And so there is this potential triangle developing. There's one thing we know about triangles. They have pointy sides. Chapter 5. The schoolmaster sat in his homely dwelling attached to the school, both being modern erections. And I will pause so that we can all acknowledge the word erections. And he looked across the way at the old house in which his teacher Sue had a lodging. The arrangement had been concluded very quickly. A pupil teacher who was to have been transferred to Mr. Phillotson's school had failed him, and Sue had been taken as stopgap. All such provisional arrangements as these could only last till the next annual visit of H.M. Inspector, whose approval was necessary to make them permanent. Having taught for some two years in London, though she had abandoned that vocation of late, Miss Bridehead was not exactly a novice, and Phillotson thought there would be no difficulty in retaining her services, which he already wished to do, though she had only been with him three or four weeks. He had found her quite as bright as Jude had described her. And what master tradesman does not wish to keep an apprentice who saves him half his labor? So, in the first paragraph of chapter five, we've learned that Sue has indeed moved in. Two or three weeks have gone by, and Phillotson has found her efforts satisfactory to this point. We're given no indication of any other feelings that Mr. Phillotson may or may not be developing for Sue Bridehead, and that is a relief. I think we can all agree that things are going to work out for everybody. It was a little over half past eight o'clock in the morning, and he was waiting to see her cross the road to the school when he would follow. At 20 minutes to nine, she did cross, a light hat tossed on her head, and he watched her as a curiosity. A new emanation, which had nothing to do with her skill as a teacher, seemed to surround her this morning. Huh, I wonder what that new emanation is, Mr. Phillotson. He went to the school also, and Sue remained governing her class at the other end of the room all day under his eye. She certainly was an excellent teacher. Well, so, paragraph one. No such feelings. Paragraph two, all the feelings. Hardy did not waste any time. A new emanation. Yes, yes. I know of those emanations of which he speaks, which sometimes seem to radiate around an object of some uh, lustful desire. And look, to Phillotson's credit, for the first two or three weeks, She was an able apprentice under his care. And then 
He sees her in a rakish new hat and suddenly what had been purely professional feelings turn to something new. What I'm saying is Phillotson's not a scumbag, I don't think. I don't think Phillotson had said, hey, Sue, you know, I have this spot at my schoolhouse and you should take it with anything, anything wolfish to that. I think he has very good intentions. And now he's seeing her in this new light. Back in a moment here on Obscure. You're listening to Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. It was part of his duty to give her private lessons in the evening, and some article in the code made it necessary that a respectable elderly woman should be present at these lessons when the teacher and the taught were of different sexes. Now, ordinarily, I would say, oh, that's so old-fashioned. But now, <laughs> in light of this, uh, this particular moment in which we find ourselves culturally, I'm thinking, well, that's not such a terrible idea. And it calls to mind Mike Pence's, uh, uh, what is it, a dictum that he won't have a meal with a woman by himself? I mean, it's all so Victorian in its way, isn't it? And you, and you go, well, that's just horrible that a man and a woman can't feel like they can just have a meal together without some sort of chaperone. And yet, part of me is going, geez, we're in such a fraught moment and everything is so terrible that for her own comfort, I wonder if she would prefer it. What does Sue prefer having the elderly chaperone there at the lessons? Or is Sue going, well, that's just nonsense. Of course, we can have lessons together without this old spinster sitting, staring, making everybody self-conscious. I don't know. We're at a, we're in a fraught moment. And uh, in Hardy's day, these fraught moments were overcome with Victorian prudery. Maybe we need more Victorian prudery. Maybe we need less. I don't know. I don't know. A lot of prudery out there. And a lot of rudery. It's a word I just made up, but it's a good word. Richard Phillotson. Oh, his first name is Richard. Richard Phillotson thought of the absurdity of the regulation in this case when he was old enough to be the girl's father. But he faithfully acted up to it and sat down with her in a room where Mrs. Hawes, the widow at whose house Sue lodged, occupied herself with sewing. The regulation was indeed not easy to evade, for there was no other sitting room in the dwelling. Sometimes, as she figured, it was arithmetic that they were working at. She would involuntarily glance up with a little inquiring smile at him, and if she assumed that, being the master, he must perceive all that was passing in her brain as right or wrong. Phillotson was not really thinking of the arithmetic at all, but of her in a novel way, which somehow seemed strange to him as preceptor. Perhaps she knew that he was thinking of her thus. So, I mean, this is just one of those things, right? I mean, this is oh so contemporary. Here we have a workplace situation in which the older man 
who has all the power in the situation is behaving respectfully and has been for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, and he's behaving in exactly the manner in which he should. I don't know that he should be commended for that. But I'm going to acknowledge it at the very least. And Sue Bridehead, the younger, impressionable gal with uh, a career in front of her, uh, behaving exactly as she should. I don't know whether she should be commended, but I will acknowledge it. And Mrs. Hawes, the widow, sewing peacefully by the fire, ignoring the two of them, behaving as she should. And I will commend Mrs. Hawes because Mrs. Hawes has had a, has had a long life and probably a life unremarked upon to this point. And so she deserves to be commended. I commend you, Mrs. Hawes. But now we're in a situation which I think all of us saw coming where Richard Phillotson is starting to regard Sue Bridehead as something more than a pupil teacher. He, 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 he is seeing her as a capable young woman. He has not commented on her in any way, on her physicality. Uh, he has not objectified her. He has done nothing of the sort. But he, he appreciates in her something. And it was perhaps it was the hat and the new emanations that gave him these new feelings. But he is thinking of her and he believes himself to be uh, thinking of her in a strange way. It seems strange to him as preceptor and he knows he's too old for her. For a few weeks, their work had gone on with a monotony, which in itself was a delight to him. Then it happened that the children were to be taken to Christminster to see an itinerant exhibition in the shape of a model of Jerusalem, to which schools were admitted at a penny a head in the interests of education. They marched along the road two and two, she beside her class with her simple cotton sunshade, her little thumb cocked up against its stem, and Phillotson behind in his long dangling coat, handling his walking stick genteely, in the musing mood which had come over him since her arrival. The afternoon was one of sun and dust, and when they entered the exhibition room, few people were present but themselves. The model of the ancient city stood in the middle of the apartment, and the proprietor, with a fine religious philanthropy written on his features, walked round it with a pointer in his hand, in his hand, showing the young people the various quarters and places known to them by name from reading their Bibles, Mount Moriah, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the city of Zion, the walls and the gates, outside one of which there was a large mound like a tumulus, and on the mound a little white cross. The spot, he said, was Calvary. I think, said Sue to the schoolmaster, as she stood with him a little in the background, that this model, elaborate as it is, is a very imaginary production. How does anybody know that Jerusalem was like this in the time of Christ? I am sure this man doesn't. It is made after the best conjectural maps based on actual visits to the city as it now exists. I fancy we have had enough of Jerusalem, she said, considering we are not descended from the Jews. Well, here he goes again. <laughs> Come on, Hardy. Come on. Earlier in the book, he had kind of badmouthed the Jews. Now he's got Sue Bridehead sort of being a little dismissive of the Jews. You are descended from the Jews, Sue Bridehead. As a Christian, you are descended from the Jews. And besides that, Jerusalem is a holy city for everybody. 
So yeah, she's she's sneering a little bit at the Jews here, and 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 Sue Bridehead, I have been your champion. I have defended you. I have. I admit that I neglected to commend you only moments before, but I do not care for your sneering. Considering we are not descended from the Jews, there was nothing first rate about the place or people after all, as there was about Athens, Rome, Alexandria, and other old cities. But my dear girl, consider what it is to us. She was silent, for she was easily repressed and then perceived behind the group of children clustered round the model, a young man in a white flannel jacket, his form being bent so low in his intent inspection of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, that his face was almost hidden from view by the Mount of Olives. "'Look at your cousin Jude,' continued the schoolmaster. "'He doesn't think we have had enough of Jerusalem.' "'Ah, I didn't see him,' she cried in her quick, light voice. "'Jude!' How seriously you're going into it? Jude started up from his reverie and saw her. Oh, Sue, he said with a glad flush of embarrassment. These are your skilled school children. Of course, I saw that schools were admitted in the afternoons and, and thought you might come, but I got so deeply interested that I didn't remember where I was. How it carries one back, doesn't it? I could examine it for hours, but I have only a few minutes, unfortunately, for I am in the middle of a job out here. Well, are we really to believe that, that he just happened to be there? Come on, we know Jude is a psycho. We know he's a stalker. We know he's in love with Sue. He's probably been casing the place for weeks, hoping that she would come by. Sue has become the focal point in this triangle. And I don't know that she knows it or doesn't know it. I suspect uh, some part of her knows it. Hardy would have us believe that she is immune to these thoughts, that they bounce off of her like photons But I suspect that Sue is not entirely naive here. That doesn't mean she wants or encourages these thoughts, but I I think she is not totally oblivious to these feelings from, from these two gentlemen, neither of whom will make a good match for her. There is her cousin on one hand, there is the man old enough to be her father on the other. And I don't know, Sue's in a pickle. Your cousin is so terribly clever that she criticizes it unmercifully, uh, meaning Jerusalem, said Phillotson, with good-humored satire. She is quite skeptical as to its correctness. No, Mr. Phillotson, I am not altogether. I hate to be what is called a clever girl. (laughs) Yes, why would you want to be clever when you could just be doe-eyed and dumb? There are too many of that sort now, answered Sue sensitively. I only meant... I don't know what I meant, except that it was what you don't understand. I know your meaning, said Jude ardently, although he did not. And I think you are quite right. That's a good Jude. I know you believe in me. She impulsively seized his hand and leaving a reproachful look on the schoolmaster turned away to Jude, her voice revealing a tremor which she herself felt to be absurdly uncalled for by sarcasm so gentle. She had not the least conception how the hearts of the twain went out to her at this momentary revelation of feeling, and what a complication she was building up thereby in the futures of both. I call bullshit. I call bullshit. I called it a second ago, and I'm calling it again now. Here, she had not the least conception how the hearts of the twain went out to her at this momentary revelation of feeling. I don't believe that she doesn't know. She may not be thinking of it totally consciously. 
But I do think that a woman in her, what, mid-20s understands when there is some feeling of, let's say, gentleness towards her from members of the opposing or, let's say, opposite sex. Now, I know as a guy, when I was in my mid-20s and there was a girl who maybe had a crush on me, like I suspected it. It didn't happen often, I can assure you of that, but I suspected it. In those rare times when uh, somebody had a crush on me and the feelings were not reciprocated, I felt incumbent upon myself to be gentle with that person and to do my best not to um, inflame the situation. But at the same time, some part of me also liked the situation. It's impossible, I think, to not like it on some level. Some part of you likes it, but you don't want to encourage it, but you also don't want it entirely to go away. And I think Hardy does not understand the human human nature well enough to ascribe those feelings that he himself would be sensitive to, to women. He has that 19th century, I guess 20th century and 21st century thing too, where he thinks women are one of two things. It's the Madonna whore thing. And he's making Sue very much the Madonna who does not know of amorous feelings and that she is somehow oblivious to it. Bullshit. Bullshit. Fucking phone. Fucking phone. The phone has become as much a character in this podcast as, let's say, the ant, a minor but irritating character. If you recall, it's my wife, Martha, that insists on this landline. So here's, I'm going to take a break. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yell at her. I'm going to yell at the phone. She's probably going to yell at me. And when I return... Uh, I'm going to, well, I'm going to ask her to come back into the Memorial Library with me to talk about crushes, you know, and all that good stuff. Do you ever hear something and wonder to yourself, hey, was that racist? Each Wednesday, the show, Yo, Is This Racist? tries to answer that question question. It's hosted by Andrew T. and Tony Newsom, who you probably know from all your favorite Earwolf shows. In each episode, Tony and Andrew cover racism in recent news and pop culture, and they answer burning questions from fan-submitted voicemails about your maybe racist co-workers, maybe racist friends and family members. Their guests include huge range of actors, writers, comedians like Jimmy O. Yang from Silicon Valley and Crazy Rich Asians, comedian Nicole Byer, LeVar Burton, and John Lovett from Pod Save America. And this week, they're releasing their thousandth episode. I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to get, take that into my head for a second. A thousand. To celebrate, there's an extra special episode with a ton of guests like Carl Tart, Rhea Butcher, and more. You don't want to miss this one. Listen and subscribe to Yo! Is This Racist? on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Hey, I'm back. I have company. My dear wife, Martha. The whole reason, Martha, you're the whole reason I'm even reading this obscure piece of literature. So what I'm interested to find out is when somebody has a crush on you, do you know? Okay, here's what's going on. I get what's going on. That doesn't tell me anything about 
It doesn't matter about the book. Forget the book. I'm asking about you, a real life girl. Okay, but I'm not Sue Brideshead, and that you don't have to anything be. Anything about me doesn't prove anything about Sue Brideshead. I understand that anecdotally, it's not apples to apples because not all women are the same. I'm asking about you, in your experience as a real life girl. That's not interesting. Let please let me decide what's interesting. I hope we're cut off. Cut off. Yeah, did you stop? I started it again. Jude's in love with his cousin, Sue. Phillotson, the teacher, is in love with Sue. Thomas Hardy is saying Sue doesn't know any of this. I'm saying, in my experience, dealing with real-life girls, and as being a real-life boy, generally you kind of have an inkling when somebody likes you, if they have a crush on you or whatever. And he and Thomas Hardy's acting like she wouldn't know. I'm saying you as a person, don't you know when somebody has a crush on you? Um, I don't know. There might have been people who had crushes on me I never knew about. I mean, I guess I generally get a sense, but... You get a vibe. Yeah, but I'm sure there were plenty of guys who had crushes on me. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. No, uh, I think really? You, no, I don't think so. Mm, yeah, I think so. I think you probably... No, mm, I, I think so. Yes, I think I you think. probably... <laughs> hmm. mm, I don't think so. Okay, but anyway, what's your point? Oh, my point is Hardy doesn't get it. That's my point. My point is that Hardy is kind of idealizing Sue to represent a kind of uh, uh, whatever, a, a sort of a sort of feminine innocence that isn't can't be right for a girl who's in her early 20s and buys perverted statues, by the way. The reason she got kicked out of her apartment is because she bought this porno and her landlady saw it and was like, you can't have porno in my in my house. I don't understand what your point is. So, so you're saying Hardy's a bad writer? No, is of course not. To say? No, I'm saying in this point he's getting it wrong, and it's irritating me. That's oh what I'm saying. You, and and I think you just want to defend Thomas Hardy because he's one of the greats. Fine. Well, I I want to have an informed opinion, and I yeah, haven't you read the book. I am reading the book, and I don't have an informed opinion. So well, because you don't means that I wouldn't. Yes. The whole point of this is that I'm explaining the book perfectly to my listeners. Sue's a perv. So she would know if a dude is into her. That's what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Okay. And you would know. You know. You've told me when people have crushes on you. You lord it over my head. You're like, so-and-so has a crush on me, I can tell. You've told me that about other dudes. Are you kidding me? No, I could name names, but I'm not going to on a podcast. Like 25 years ago? No, more recently. No. Yes. Anyway. What, anyway? I feel like I'm at a huge disadvantage. What do you mean? Why? Because I haven't read the book. You don't have to read the book. It's not about the book. You're telling me I don't have to read the book, but you're reading a book. He's getting frustrated. I'm getting frustrated because... I, can't, I don't understand why you just can't accept the premise that it's not about the book. It's about how, what human behavior is like. It's not about Sue specifically. Okay, you're asking me a question that is not, you're saying it's not related to the book? It's tangential to the book and it supports a point I'm trying to make yes, about the book. It supports your point, but that doesn't mean... It's just a question about human behavior. And so I asked an expert, which is you... Do you know when somebody has a crush on you and you're acting like I'm trying to be uh, like I'm trying to like I'm trying to entrap you? No, I think you're trying to to um, use me to um, 
To support me? To yes. Support your yes. Opinion. Regardless of the book, generally, people can tell when somebody else has a crush on them. That is my opinion. And I'm asking you whether or not you agree with that opinion, regardless of the book. Okay, but so you're asking me to just take this thing in isolation. Yes! We could try again sometime. And in another 20 I'll, years. In maybe 20 I'll years. read the last few chapters and then we can try this again. We, are, are, we can try it on our 40th anniversary, 20 no, years from now, which is that. Ruby. I'm not doing that. Oh, Ruby. Do I actually get, <laughs> do I actually get a Ruby? Uh, not, I mean, we're obviously not going to make it that far. No, no. My dear wife, Martha, dear listeners, isn't, isn't it just so gross how in love we are? I mean, we're just... Aren't we just two adorbs? I'm going to keep reading chapter five for those of you following along. The model wore too much of an educational aspect for the children not to tire of it soon. And a little later in the afternoon, they were all marched back to Lumsden, Jude returning to his work. He watched the juvenile flock in their clean frocks and pinafores filing down the street towards the country beside Phillotson and Sue, and a sad, dissatisfied sense of being out of the scheme of the latter's lives had possession of him. Phillotson had invited him to walk out and see them on Friday evening when there would be no lessons to give to Sue, and Jude had eagerly promised to avail himself of the opportunity. So what, what, what Hardy hasn't said is in the weeks in between the last time we have heard of Jude and now, what has the relationship been between Jude and Sue? I find it hard to believe that he hasn't been coming over there all the time. Because he has essentially tried to install her at the schoolhouse precisely so that he could be close to her. But there's no mention of how their relationship has developed over the weeks. And that would be interesting to know because I think it would affect how Phillotson views Jude, how Phillotson views Sue, how Sue views Jude. But we're given no information there, uh, which seems to me to be an oversight on Hardy's part. And if he hasn't been there, I think we should know that. The scholars and teachers moved homewards, and the next day, on looking on the blackboard in Sue's class, Phillotson was surprised to find upon it, skillfully drawn in chalk, a perspective view of Jerusalem, with every building shown in its place. I thought you took no interest in the model and hardly looked at it, he said. I hardly did, she said, but I remembered that much of it. It is more than I had remembered myself. Okay, so now she's doing a little bit goodwill hunting thing here, where she's just recreated Jerusalem from memory on the chalkboard in perfect perspective. So Sue has talents that we did not know about. She is, in fact, some sort of savant that she can look at the model of Jerusalem and then recreate it on the chalkboard from memory in perspective. This seems like a great talent. You know, she could be an architect. She could be creating the buildings of stone that Jude then creates by his hand. She has a, a, a real talent here. Her Majesty's school inspector was at that time paying surprise visits in this neighborhood to test the teaching unawares. And two days later, in the middle of the morning lessons, the latch of the door was softly lifted and in walked my gentleman, the King of Terrors to pupil teachers. 
To Mr. Phillotson, the surprise was not great. Like the lady in the story, he had been played that trick too many times to be unprepared. I don't know what story and what lady, but I think we can deduce the meaning here. But Sue's class was at the further end of the room, and her back was towards the entrance. The inspector, therefore, came and stood behind her and watched her teaching some half-minute before she became aware of his presence. She turned and realized that an oft-dreaded moment had come. The effect upon her timidity was such that she uttered a cry of fright. <laughs> I'm going to enact that cry of fright. So she's staring at the, at, at the chalkboard and she's saying, now children, uh, listen to these arithmetics. And then she turns and she sees the guy and she goes, oh, that's, what I'm, that's, how, I'm, that's how I'm doing the cry of fright. Just a brief, oh, Phillotson, with a strange instinct of solicitude quite beyond his control, was at her side just in time to prevent her from falling from faintness. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on, Hardy. She's going to faint because the guy walks in the door. He knows. She knows who he is. He's just, he's just the, he's the inspector. He's come to see how she's teaching and she's going to faint. You know what? If she's going to faint when an inspector walks through the door, she shouldn't have the job. So maybe my performance was a little bit too subtle. And we know the unsubtlety of Hardy because we determined that in the last episode. Hey, Shakespeare, why are you so subtle? Why are you so subtle, Shakespeare? So I'm going to I'm going to redo my performance of her startling in fright. So she's teaching. OK, children, now pay attention to the arithmetic. She turns around. She sees the guy come in. and She's that didn't seem quite right. right. Pay attention to the arithmetic. She sees him come in. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> and then she starts weeping. And then, oh, my stars. I'm catching the vapors. I'm catching the vapors, Mr. Inspector. Ah, oh, the vapors I have. Oh, I'm feeling ever so faint. She's Southern now. She's a, she's a Southern belle in the antebellum South. And she has her corset tied so tight as she oversees the labor in the fields that just the first ray of sun that should bounce off of her forehead is causing her to faint. A mint julep, please. I need a mint julep. She soon recovered herself and laughed. Uh, but when the inspector had gone, there was a reaction. And she was so white that Phillotson took her into his room and gave her some brandy to bring her round. <laughs> I mean, what the hell? He has to have her faint. He basically, he, he, he takes her to his room and gives her brandy instead of a mint julep. And then when she comes around, she wakes up. She found him holding her hand. All right. So he's holding her hand. She's just recovered. And, and she goes, you ought to have told me, she gasped petulantly, that one of the inspector's surprise visits was imminent. Oh, what shall I do? Now he'll write and tell the managers that I am no good and I shall be disgraced forever. He won't do that, my dear little girl. You are the best teacher ever I had. He looked so gently at her that she was moved and regretted that she had upbraided him. When she was better she went home. Jude, in the meantime, had been waiting impatiently for Friday. 
On both Wednesday and Thursday, he had been so much under the influence of his desire to see her that he walked after dark some distance along the road in the direction of the village, and on returning to his room to read, found himself quite unable to concentrate his mind on the page. On Friday, as soon as he had got himself up as he thought Sue would like to see him, and made a hasty tea, he set out, notwithstanding that the evening was wet. Ah, the trees overhead deepened the gloom of the hour, and they dripped sadly upon him. (laughs) And then the next thing it says is, impressing him with forebodings. Yes, yes, things, Jude, Jude, my man, things are going to turn out bad for you. They always turn out bad for you. Even the trees are crying at your approach. And then it says illogical forebodings. For though he knew that he loved her, he also knew that he could not be more to her than he was. On turning the corner and entering the village, the first sighted that greeted his eyes was that of two figures under one umbrella coming out of the vicarage gate. Can we even imagine who those two figures would be, friends? Do we have any inkling of who those two figures might be? Because I have a guess. He was too far back for them to notice him, but he knew in a moment that they were Sue and Phillotson. The latter was holding the umbrella over her head, and they had evidently been paying a visit to the vicar, probably on some business connected with the schoolwork. And as they walked, they probably got married. They probably just got married. (laughs) And as they walked along the wet and deserted lane, Jude saw Phillotson place his arm round the girl's waist, whereupon she gently removed it. Uh Uh-oh. But he replaced it. Uh Uh-oh. And she let it remain, looking quickly round her with an air of misgiving. Phillotson, you old dog. She did not look absolutely behind her and therefore did not see Jude, who sank into the hedge like one struck with a blight. Then he remained hidden till they had reached Sue's cottage and she had passed in. Phillotson going on to the school hard by. Oh, He's too old for her, too old, cried Jude, in all the terrible sickness of hopeless, handicapped love. He could not interfere. Was he not Arabella's? He was unable to go on further and retraced his steps towards Christminster. Every tread of his feet seemed to say to him that he must on no account stand in the schoolmaster's way with Sue. Phillotson was perhaps twenty years her senior, but many a happy marriage had been made in such conditions of age. The ironical clinch to his sorrow was given by the thought that the intimacy between his cousin and the schoolmaster had been brought about entirely by himself. Yes, Jude, you had done this. Twas your own machinations. Twas your own Oh, God, there's a word on the tip of my tongue, and now I can't, I can't think of it. Machinations is good, but it's not the word I'm looking for. It is to your own, it's not dealings, your own doings. It's not your own doings. It's your own, oh, I'm going to look up a synonym for machinations. This is, this, this is one of these things that will just, 
kill me if I don't if I don't figure it out. Scheming, Jude, your own contrivances that brought you to this place. You, Jude, had set this love machine in motion. And just as the industrial age is crushing all that is around you, so this new machinery, these new machinations are crushing your heart. And so you walk through this wet evening and you have the trees dripping on you and you see the umbrella and you see Phillotson's arm go round the waist of Sue and she removes it, but then she lets it remain when he returns it around her waist. What were they doing at the vicar's office? Did they wed? Is that possible? And Jude, forlorn, heartsick, knowing that he belongs to another, a woman, as far as we know, in Australia forevermore. Jude condemned to walk the earth alone. Jude, himself now a ghost again. Jude, a specter, a spirit wanting only love. But from his cousin, it cannot be. He cannot marry again. And he knows he must not stand in the way of this incipient relationship even though he believes Phillotson to be too old for her. But hey, Keith Richards married a woman much older, much younger than him, and they seem to be very much in love. I really have no idea who Keith Richards married or whether or not they are in love. But it's hard for me to believe that he didn't, and now I need to look that up. <sighs> oh, Patty Hansen. She's born in 56, so she's 62. So he's what? 130, so he's about 70 years older. But they've been married since 1983, so things are going all right. And that's what I'm saying. Things can go fine for Phillotson and Sue, and maybe Jude can find it in his heart to even embrace this relationship. And hopefully Sue is as enamored with Phillotson as Phillotson is with Sue, although we have seen no evidence of that to this point, other than that moment when she awoke from her faint and his hand was in hers and she did not seem to mind and 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 he ta- he spoke to her with such gentleness that she felt badly for abrading him are those the seeds of love i don't know i don't know but i do know that we have concluded chapter 5 i know that things are bad and about to get worse for Jude and Phillotson and Sue. And part of me keeps hoping that we're going to see Arabella again, that she's going to sail back and something's going to happen. But but maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part. I'm hoping there's going to be like a like a left eye thing where uh, Arabella burns down his house. You remember from TLC? I'm hoping for some arson. I'm hoping for some mayhem. But it's all right there, right? It, it, the, 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 the discontent is right there. We, we have the makings of a murder mystery here. I don't know that there'll be a murder mystery, but maybe that'll keep you listening. If you believe that there's a murder about to happen here in Christminster, just outside of Christminster. And in the meantime, guys, look, think about it. Think about what's going to happen. Draw your own conclusions. Speculate as you will. All will be revealed in the next thrilling episode of Jude. Oh, no, that's not the name of the podcast. All will be revealed in the next thrilling episode of Obscure. Until then, I wish you adieu.
Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. To subscribe and get more information, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nesea. Spanish Aki Presents.